Welcome to the Walt Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music, as always, is by Jonathan Harmon, and I'm your host, Dylan Rourke. Today, we're going to part two of our interview with Bill Rebain. Something you may have noticed in part one, and uh, you'll notice it even more in here, he calls me Daryl. Uh, <laughs> I didn't notice it while we were doing the interview. Uh, I was too focused on his answers and, and the stories he was telling. So Jason pointed it out to me afterward. So anyway, just pretend I'm Daryl for this one. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, in this one we talk a lot more about his movie making process, uh, the people he's worked with, and some things I had no idea about. So I hope you enjoy. So that moves us. Uh, we can we can kind of move along here. I don't want to keep you on the phone for hours, although I could. Your next film uh, was a few years later in 1974, Invasion from Inner Earth. Aside from that being a uh, first full feature film that you were taking on as a director, you also directed it under your Estonian name. Was that something you were hoping to do there forward, or was it that it was obviously the only time you directed under that name? What made you make that decision? Give me again. I had some beeps here on the phone. I couldn't get oh, that. sure. Um, you directed Invasion of it from Inner Earth as your Estonian name, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Is it Ito or Ito? Ito. Ito. Okay. And so you directed using that name. What made you make that decision to go back to your Estonian name for that? Interesting question. I don't know why I did that. Don't know. Okay. I, just, I was curious. It stood out to me. Uh, that was that was very interesting to me. And I think after I saw after I saw the saw the first cut, I may, I think I made that decision. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go that route. Mm-hmm. I remember, I was still my head was still in musicals and eventually trying to do mainstream pictures, and I was writing more mainstream material than I was doing. And Invasion, that was written by your wife, Barbara, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. She, was, she provided the impetus. We put it together. Together. Okay. But certainly she had much to do with it. You guys collaborated together pretty much on everything, even uh, the documentary you have coming out about Lotta Morgan, or that, that came out, or that should be coming out, I'm sorry. It is completed uh, she actually had worked on that with you as well prior to her uh, passing. Well, she was the backbone of every effort that I made in production after Monster Gogo. And uh, became a uh, production manager, accountant for the production, keeping the books straight, mm -hmm. and an organizer, script girl, I knew it did direct to everything. She really was the backbone of the studio and the operations at large. You seemed like you guys were a good team when it came to this. Yes, it turned into a production family, really. Yeah, uh, your daughter Angelica has uh, appeared in several of your films. I know uh, all of your children worked in some capacity on them, so it kind of turned into, as you mentioned, a family production business. Well, you know, I remember when I came to Wisconsin, I was not going to do much in uh, theatrical production. Mm -hmm. 
And it started out with Aurora Snowmobiles that we did before Invasion, which was a documentary, the only full-blown historical documentary on the history of snowmobiles, mm-hmm. which is still going pretty strong here and there in DVDs. So uh, and then we decided to do Invasion, mm-hmm. but initially known as a Selected. And what's that? That was the original title for Invasion. The Selected, okay. The Selected. Okay. I post-produced the entire picture at the studio in Germany. Oh, interesting. Was that a a cost-saving measure, or they just had the equipment? Both. Cost-saving and Mm -hmm. didn't have the editing facility at the time to do everything at, at the ranch as a... And at this point, you guys had established the shooting ranch. Uh, well, it was called the Wing Valley Ranch first. Wing Valley, okay. It wasn't meant to be a studio. It right. only served me as a base for my industrial films, which I was doing continuously for my close friend and producer in Chicago, who got the jobs, who got the clients and everything, and then sent me out to directing. Yeah. And those, I, I know you did a lot of that industrial work, and that's um, anybody in the industry knows that's really good. That's a good living. You can make a lot of money making those and sustain your, your life on that. Were you, was doing that a, for you making it possible then to go on and make things like Invasion from Inner Earth, the giant spider invasion, and so on? Oh, absolutely, and it also was the the foundation of continuing to build up first the post-production facilities and then whatever, I, and, and buying equipment to be self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. Did, did the ranch actually work as a functioning farm also? I've read differing accounts. Only in the beginning, because I had all my kids... I bought the farm. I did it really for the kids. I wanted to bring them up in a different environment in central Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they all became 4-Hers and uh, started their own projects. One had, had beef cattle, one had horses, one had goats, one had ducks, one had pigs. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a funny farm to start with until Giant Spider Invasion. Right. Well, that's as good a segue as any. So Giant Spider Invasion uh, really was the thing that brought a lot of attention to you as a genre filmmaker. And as someone who is, is as yourself, not a big fan of horror, um, I've read that you've said that you you often ask yourself if you've made horror films. Um, and I think that's an interesting question. Uh, is anybody who just glances at your resume would say, well, he makes horror films. But for me, especially with Giant Spider Invasion, it's a very character-driven film. That's what I was wanted to most of all. Character and story-driven because of the experience of the films I have seen. I was really old Hollywood-oriented. And exploitation was something that I 
gone through with it during my time with Herschel, and I didn't like it. And horror was not my bag, really. Yeah. So you you come up with this film, The Giant Spider Invasion, and then you, speaking of old Hollywood, uh, it's a who's who in that movie. Uh, Steve Brody, Barbara Haya, Bill, Bill Williams, uh, Diane Lee Hart, the people you were pulling in there were, were people who had pedigree and I'm sure it was a thrill to work with. Was that kind of part of your love of old Hollywood, wanting to bring those people in? Yes, although it happened by coincidence, by accident, how this all came about. But I had, I had met one heck of a lot of people. I don't like to drop names or anything, but I mm -hmm. met one hell of a lot of people my various trips to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Feel free to drop any name you want. That's what this is for. <laughs> well, that's not my style. I mean, I met a lot of people I could go on telling you. <laughs> it's, it, it might uh, might add to my uh, my fans' knowledge, but, you know. Yeah. No, I understand. Some memorable moments, you know, like we forgot to mention at the beginning of Terrorist Half Day, I coincidentally ran into Ronald Reagan on Randolph Street mm -hmm. in Chicago one day on a rainy day. He was going to actually star in Terrorist Half Day. Really? Was this when he was, uh, was he still president of SAG at that point? He was not even running for governor at that time. Yeah. Isn't it low? Yeah, I can't remember when he was president of SAG if that ran into the '60s or not. I think so. So how did that? Why did that fall through? Well, we met on a rainy day in Chicago, and I had a press agent friend who was a real wizard. We walked past each other on, on Randolph Street on this rainy day, and my friend recognized him and ran after him. He says, wait a minute, I've got to talk to you. I have a producer friend of mine that needs to meet you. So he turned around, he came back, it was raining, and we stood under the marquee of the Woods Theater and started talking. And then I gave him a pitch about the movie. I said, would you consider that? He said, well, what it's all about? I had to um, tell quickly a storyline. And mention the fact, of course, that we already had June Travis contracted. And the moment I mentioned June Travis, his, his eyes lit up and he listened. He said, oh, really? I didn't know at the time, at that time, that he was a good friend of June's. He had a crush on June Travis in his earlier days. <laughs> I mean, this is, you can check that out. It's, it's a fact. Yeah, I'm. And she'd be an easy one to have a crush on. He he was immediately interested. He says, "Well, he says, can you send me a script?" And wrote down all the information, his personal information, the agent's information. We sent the script, and I was elated. I went back to my financiers, the big ones that mm -hmm. I thought I would have, and told them that I would have Ronnie Reagan cast in this thing most likely that oh you gotta be kidding he's a has-been you don't ever make box office for that oh wow and this 
story on that one. Wow. Right? But the man, there was numerous articles written about this this meeting. He was the most wonderful, kindest person I've met in this business. Taking time on a rainy day to talk to nobody. I mean, that was just, uh, I couldn't believe it myself. I was humbled. That's wonderful. That's a great story. I mean, the same thing happened also then I got into. I used to, the one place in Chicago where everything happened, where everybody that was anybody met for lunch was a place called Fritzl's on Lake and State Street. Okay. It was an opulent place. It was like Sardi's in New York. or Okay. And um, where I met at um, Forrest Tucker. Forrest, oh, okay, okay. Second, we became close friends, and I had written a script called The Big Charge, a comedy about credit cards, uh, using over playing things with a credit card about a con artist. And he loved the script. He says, we got to do it. He was in town because of Music Man. Uh, okay, yeah. You know. This was, so he, was this after F Troop? Uh, before. Before F Troop, okay. Yes, and, and his sidekicks were Johnny Weissmiller and Jesse Owens. Wow. So we would have lunch together with, at Fritzl's with uh, Forrest Tucker, Jesse Owens, and Johnny Weissmiller would get smashed. <laughs> Concocted all kinds of stories and what we could do. Right. But he was doing Music Man. Johnny Weissmuller wasn't doing very much, I'm sure. If I would have had material for him, we would have done something. Yeah. Jesse Owens was a sweetheart. That's, I can't even imagine what those lunches would have been like. That's great. Yeah. I, and I didn't even realize, you know, you talk about Jesse Owens, it came to me much later how important his name was. Mm-hmm. Because I, when I first was introduced to him, it didn't, it didn't ring a bell. You know, Olympic winner at the, at the German, yeah. German Olympics, and Hitler had a conniption for having yeah. him. In. And wow. these things you don't put together until much later. At that time, it was less meaningful. But nevertheless, we we got we were I would say uh, good friends, drank together, talked together, and tried to come up with some projects. Right. That uh, just Forrest Tucker alone is a legendary raconteur, just uh, and also a legendary drinker. Uh, <laughs> he was a, an interesting, interesting guy. Just to imagine, just the three of them together is a little mind-blowing to me. <laughs> he did his last performance, by the way, at the Shooting Ranch Studios. And what was an, that for? As an MC for the Irma State Fair musical concert with Tiny Tim. And is that the same state fair where you approached Tiny Tim about Blood Harvest? That's the one, yeah. Yeah, Okay. I have to ask, and we'll get to it in a bit, but I have to ask right now, since we're there, did 
when you asked Tiny Tim and he accepted, is that when he let you know that he already had the costume? Well, the concert was a medium success. I would say it was a, because I chose a stupid name for it called the Irma State Fair. What the hell I did that for, I never know. <laughs> it was just, it was so stupid that it started making sense to me. I thought maybe it will fly. <laughs> well, before we get to Blood Harvest, I'll, I'll pull back a little bit. So the giant spider invasion, uh, you know, we I, I mentioned in the intro what a success it was that one of the top 50 earners of 75, which was, you know, the year credited as creating the blockbuster because that's the year Jaws came out. Uh, and to be able to compete uh, in a pretty, uh, pretty significant way against a movie like that. Uh, at the time, were you aware of how big that was or was it? down the line when you look back at some of those things and you realize that? We were shooting while Jaws was, the first Jaws was shooting. Mm -hmm. And we were gloating when we found out that Spielberg had so many problems. (laughs) And the entire crew, we were talking about it all the time. But Spielberg had the the money behind him Mm -hmm. make any changes and do anything. In the meantime, the crazy distributor, Brandon Chase, at Group One, kept saying from the very beginning, he says, we've got to have a bigger spider. We never had a bigger spider in the script, a big spider in the script. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's all in my new book, The uh, uh, the Giant Spider Reason Scrapbook. Yeah, that is, uh, that's the one you co-wrote. I can't remember the co-author's name. Is that the scrapbook? Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas, yes. Yes. Yeah, we just we just got that out. I was just starting to uh, making a little noise on it. Mm-hmm. But that tells the whole story of the giant spider, way the way it happened and mm-hmm. came about. And uh, well, we won't give away too much. That let's let's let people buy it. Oh, not a bad That's idea. Not, yeah. <laughs> But we can I'd give like a, little, a couple. What's that? I'd like to make a couple of bucks off that picture. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can we can move along here again. I I'm I'm trying to be aware of your time. You're being so generous with it. Uh, as you moved along, um, we we got into and I I the Alpha Incident was your next film. And you said of it that that was the one you're most proud of. Is that stand still today? Yes, it does. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And why is that? It was a very smooth production. It was something I liked. I um, I had the help in writing it of my cousin, uh, who was not an experienced writer. She was a school teacher, mm-hmm. but she had a real knack and talent for writing especially good story and character development. And we, I have to give her credit for that because she did a marvelous job of polishing the script. It was smooth. It was pleasant to work with, with the actors. Everything went very smoothly. And that's, and a, think that's another one where you had some, you know, some old Hollywood Ralph Meeker alone 
I know yeah, by, by that time he had he'd gotten a little older, and I, I, I know he did have his struggles with the, with alcohol. Well, the worst part is he had problem. He had a stroke just prior to that. Mm-hmm. So when when he came to Wisconsin, he was still suffering and recovering from that. Oh wow! That's why the part of Charlie is so uh, subdued. It's very yeah. It's he's only got what five lines I think in the whole film. Right. Yeah. Tried his best. He did. He did manage to relax a lot and get a few drinks after every shoot. Mm-hmm. And then you, uh, along with that too, you also had George Buck Flower in there. And uh, as far as character actor goes, you you don't get much more character actor than him. What was he like to work with? Oh, uh, John Goff and George Buck Flower were dreams. Nobody could ask for better acting talent. Again, you know, mm-hmm. working with the old pros or the experienced pros, so easy. So it's such a pleasure. That's great to hear. So as you continued to work through, uh, you you kind of stuck in the genre of horror. Uh, with uh, you had a couple Bigfoot movies with the capture of Bigfoot and then Reign of the Legend of Shadow Lake. Then uh, you made one of my favorite films of yours, The Demons of Ludlow. Uh, oh, yes. Really interesting film. And it took place in the Northeast. And uh, you, what, what made you choose to do a, a movie like that? Well, that's a good story. Um, in the old, in the insert stage that we built for Giant Spider Invasion, we stored all the different props and uh, equipment. And I had bought an old piano at an auction. Mm-hmm. That was always in the way. We moved around so many times that I almost ready to commit it to the junkyard. And then one day I got the idea, what could we do with a piano that is haunted? So I sat down and I wrote the story and concocted the story of the Ludlow mm-hmm. and the little village and the Easter Town, which was really Burma, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Right setting for that. Burma and Gleason, Wisconsin. That's how the story came about. And by that time, we had already built our new big soundstage, uh, uh, by 80, with all the bells and whistles, and I decided if I'm going to shoot demons, I'm going to build all the sets under totally controlled conditions, all is set in that one stage. And I did on both sides of the stage with a L in the middle for the dolly. And we just moved from one set to the next and did everything in record time. Uh, the acting talent, it was mostly local Wisconsin talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, I think, turned out very, very well. By that time, you'd kind of built your own little repertory company of sorts. Exactly, yes, especially with Paul Benson. Yeah, Paul Benson shows up quite a few times. And uh, your daughter, Angelica, is in that as well, playing Lobo's <laughs> daughter. And every time I went to Hollywood and talked to somebody, they said, oh, here comes the guy. And what do you, what do you got next with the Gleason players, they call them? <laughs> 
That's fantastic. So the title of that, was that a nod to the Devils of Loudoun? No. Okay. It was so close, I, I, I wondered if there was something there for that, uh, the Aldous Huxley story. Strictly fabrication. Okay. I mean, original. So, so that then, was a very pleasant, again, another very pleasant picture to shoot. It was, everything went so smooth and like clock. What was the shooting schedule on that? How how long did that did that take to shoot? I think we it was principal photography was two weeks. Wow, that's incredible! And it's again, it's another one of those. It's very character driven. Uh, the story carries you along. It's got some truly tense moments. Uh, it's I consider it a little bit more of a thriller than a a horror film. Uh, was that kind of what you were aiming for with that? Uh, actually, yes, I did. Uh, um, the only horror was the chopping um, of the mayor's head, which was uh, which was okay with me because it was a ghost, mm-hmm. or done by the ghost, right? Right. So, following. I, I, I personally try to stay away from a lot of graphic horror because um, I had made my mind up that we were going to do films that would be family-oriented that could be seen by a general audience rather than R-rated. Well, then that leads to the next film, The Game, which was a comedy. That was a matter of necessity because there was a loophole in in production... uh, uh, some time, time to waste, and we, that was an impromptu, into brain fart came about, and also written very quickly. Oh, the reason for that, I, I visited this uh, big hotel res- hotel resort in northern Wisconsin, which was almost at the verge of bankruptcy. It was empty all the time. Mm-hmm. I said, there'll be something we can do all on that one roof and use just one location and concoct the story. And I came up with the story of the millionaires and the scary game. Didn't have much of a script, as I remember. Pretty much impromptu. And, uh, oh, really? In the same development. Just kind of bullet-pointed where you wanted the story to go? Right. Shut off the hip. Mm. How was that experience then? That it was kind of going to that different direction with that. It means you have to have a lot of trust in your actors, I'm sure. Yeah, we're very cooperative and willing and ready, willing and able and enthusiastic as all hell. And that helps, you know? Yeah. That's uh, actually a mark of your movies. And it's the thing that I think separates uh, a campy, low-budget film that's winking at the audience and a low-budget film where everyone is committed. And that's across the board with all of your films. I've not seen one where there is even close to an insincere performance. Everybody is giving 110%. I was surprised at the... I forgot her name now, the... the, um 
reporter, the uh, the two reporters, Vinny and uh, the gal that she got out of Chicago. She was she turned out to be excellent. It was her first acting role too. Oh, really? That it's a it's an interesting film. It's uh it's a lot of fun. And it's definitely got comedic moments, but it's also got moments that just take you completely by surprise. Yeah, well, there was one big player in it that I cringe at the time as a young musician in the group. But unfortunately, he was he was part of the family that was part of the investor, one of the investors. Oh, okay. And free. Even better. Closer. <laughs> and that moves us into blood harvest which is an interesting film i think tiny tim gets the uh everybody kind of gets drawn to it for that but he's so much of a side character compared to everything else going on in that one and again it's it's you're back in the horror genre here well it's the film that i think that sunk me i'm afraid in what way and Physically, mentally, and I think contributed greatly to my illness at that time. I always thought, uh, quite frankly, that it was was the picture that I was not supposed to make with that kind of graphic horror. Mm -hmm. It was appalling when we wrote it, and because I was a DP on it and directed it as well, Uh, during the uh, those uh, hanging scenes, and I had a my British producer friend who kept saying, "We gotta have more blood and guts and nudity." Mm-hmm. Distributors wanted, they demanded. Right. So when it came to the to the graphic horror scenes, I had the camera on a on a fearless dolly. I simply turned the camera and said, action, and turned away, smoked a cigarette, and let the scene play out. Wow. I don't think I was supposed to make that. That was not the type of stuff that we were supposed to do at the ranch. After you made it and you finished it and put it out there, there was obviously then a kind of a, not a huge gap at all your next movie was certainly very different twister's revenge do you do you feel that um it was a redemption by, okay that's kind of where i was going with it okay and i'm sorry to hear that it took such a toll on you um but it did lead to i, I assume a friendship with tiny tim you later went on to work with him uh, uh doing a couple episodes for a tv series tiny tim and friends God, yes. Um, Well, you know, in every life, a few disasters happen, right? Um, The um, getting back to Blood Harvest, I call it nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Tiny was very, very shy in front of the camera. He could remember as thousand songs, the lyrics to everything written since the early 1900s. He was a, that's, some people don't realize what a musical encyclopedia he was. Exactly. But he 
could not remember a damn line. Really? Wow. And and he always would say, Mr. Bain, it's always Mr. Bain. Mm-hmm. How do we do this? How do we do this? How do I act? What do I do? Tell wow. Me. We worked things through little by little and tried to get into his head and make him comfortable. And, and he finally got and said, let's shoot it. But he was a real trooper. And he had now he had the uh, the suit that he had bought from an uh, I, I believe he bought a lot from a old circus uh, to get the marvelous Marvo costume. Oh, that was that was made for him by the Australian producer that did the Australian documentary at uh, which I have the rights to. Really. There is a lot of false information about where that costume came from then. That's yeah, the producer of that made it for him in Australia. Wow. He was very proud of that. His The two songs he sings in that are just, the the Jack and Jill is, it's haunting. I, I thought it was very effective. You have no idea how much I had to convince the original kids that came to me with a script that turned into Blood Harvest. Mm-hmm. He looked at me when I said, the only way this can come off is if he used Tiny Tim in a part of a, in that part, mm-hmm. make him really weird. And he looked at me in a strange way and said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> No, I'm thinking commercial. Right, yeah. Well, it certainly made it a, a memorable film, just just for his performance alone. Uh, I understand it It definitely sounds like it took a toll on you. Well, we uh, just finished cutting a, uh, putting together a three-hour three version of special of Tiny Tim, all his history, and... Um, Bits of um, uh, of uh, cabaret performances that he oh, did man. in our studio bar and restaurant, impromptu, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and rolling on the floor doing Elvis songs, <laughs> and then with the documentary footage from Australia, which is so bizarre. I don't know if you've caught a glimpse of that anywhere. No. haven't released it yet. Uh, but it's three hours long. And it's the most bizarre stuff you've ever seen. Tiny, tiny in Australia. Partaking at a dance with a trans, transvestite. And sitting on bed drinking beer with a new chick. Wow. Uh, well, I'm going to seek that out now. Uh, that's, <laughs> I'm in the process of a deal with uh, Dark Force Entertainment. If, can't make up their minds if they want to release the special. Did you say Dark Horse or Dark Force? Dark Force. Dark Force, Dave, okay. Dave DeFalco. Okay. Well, we'll definitely He's, keep an eye out for that. 
has Giant Spider Invasion right now for another two or three years. Okay. Well, we've been on the phone for a couple hours, and I don't want to take all your time. So uh, there's a couple things I just have to ask about. And the first, and this is something that I ran across just in my research for you, and I was delighted by it. You did a TV pilot for the BBC called Grin and Bear It. And I've only been able to see a little piece of it. What what was the impetus for that? Uh, my good friend and stockholder in the shooting and studios by the name of Ed Steiner in Switzerland, who's a financier, who was financing a engineer in London who had created a bear suit that would be remotely operated. And look like, and look real mm-hmm. automation. And he financed this guy, but he didn't know how to present this thing to bear properly. So he asked me to come to London, and I think with an English writer who had a great sense of humor, we put together this half-hour pilot show, which was supposed to be a series, mm-hmm. and gathered a crew. I think I did the whole thing and I was there two weeks total. We shot it in two or three days. Was and that... it turned out to be a campy, strange bit of piece of comedy, I hope. It, it, I, it just in the little section that I've seen, it, it reminded me very much of an old Hollywood film. A lot of slapstick. Um, the... But I British humor. British humor. <laughs> it was definitely kind of had the noir vibe with the the private detective, but also with the broad comedy. Um, the 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 scene where they both end up in the bar and the bear's wearing a suit. Was, <laughs> that absolutely slayed me. That was fantastic. Is, he's is but that, a, you know he's but he's I'm slips. <laughs> Is there any chance that full half hour would, would ever be released? I I thought that we put it on YouTube. I was only able to find a, a small section of it. I wasn't able to find the full half hour. Maybe I need well, to dig a little deeper. I'll have to do something about that. I'll ask my uh, computer lady uh, to see what we can resurrect her and put the whole thing on on independent artists. Uh, Gaming, mm-hmm. grin and bear it. And uh, I'll just go ahead and tell the listeners now: uh, you can find uh, independent artists on the web. Uh, there's also uh, the, and that's going to be under the giantspiderinvasion.com. You can learn more about independent artists there. And uh, you've got your own web- website, Bill Rebrain, Re- yeah, where you uh, post a lot of blog posts. And they they vary all the way from political to uh, just uh, social as well as uh, film. And yeah, I haven't done much of that. Uh, I, I stopped when I was, I was getting too political with it. I see. And we all understand those reasons, right? Yeah. And then Arrow Films has put together the Weird Wisconsin Collection. And 
uh, it just became available in America. Arrow's an English company, but it just became available uh, on the 25th. Mine is in the mail right now being shipped to me. Very excited about it. (laughs) I will will refrain from saying anything negative, but dealing with Arrow has been a two-year nightmare. I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, uh, you know... This is not an industry full of just full of pleasantry and wonderful things. There's a lot of a lot of crap going on, and the piracy has uh, makes you a nervous wreck. I've I've got a lot of friends who are independent filmmakers, and it's you know it's the internet has made it so easy to just it, it's made people feel like they have the right to upload whatever they want and if, whether or not they own the licensing to it. And, uh, it's a, I know it's a nightmare for them. So I can only imagine for you, uh, with the, the list of films you've got and their popularity, how much that's been a bother. Well, you forgot one, one project there. And that's the, uh, the final guns or the true story of the battle of the bulge. I, that did not come up in my stuff. What is that? Back to Lazzarino, Tony Lazzarino and the X-15, who had the deal with Columbia to do the true story of the Battle of the Bulge, which was moved to its production was moved to my studio in Germany because Lazzarino ran out of money and wanted us to finance the follow-up production that Columbia had started. Mm-hmm. And it so happened to include people like uh, Dwight Eisenhower, John Eisenhower, General Omar Bradley, wow. General Hassel von Manteuffel of the German Fifth Army, and most of all, the last remaining Führer of the German Reich, Admiral Dönitz. And I was assigned as a personal assistant to General von Manteuffel as a translator and his personal aide, mm-hmm. and then went into an interview. As a matter of fact, it was the last interview made that I know of with the great Admiral Dönitz of Germany, the last year of the German Reich. And that was a trip and a half. Wow. I was a translator, and Tony Lazarino, the producer, was asking the question, and we had a meeting at Admiral Dernitz's home. If, if you know your history, he was uh, he was released from uh, from the Nuremberg trials mm-hmm. and pardoned. Nevertheless, he was the last hero of the German Reich. Right. And I had to do the translating for the interview, and I was sitting between General Monteufel and uh, Admiral Dönitz, and we had a nice coffee table meeting with all wonderful German pastry and a uh, wife or a lady was serving everything, and then the interview went very well for the first half hour until Lazarina asked, the magic question of what did he know 
about the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. How was he involved? At that moment, Dönitz picked up his book that he had written called Dönitz, which was worldwide known. Mm -hmm. Picked it off the couch next to him and threw it on the coffee table and the coffee cups went flying and the pastry went flying. And he said, how dare you ask me a question like that when you can read everything in my book. And his anger was directed at the messenger, which was me. Of course. Right? Most embarrassing question. Well, it took took quite a while to get that situation resolved. But we ended up walking down the garden path with Dönitz, my my partner from Germany, studio owner Peter Fink, and mm-hmm. myself and Lazarino. And I believe it was the last known footage ever recorded of Dönitz, which included myself and uh, and General von Manteuffel. So that was a highlight of. That was a highlight. I remember I was at at the age of, uh, I think it was how old I was, 23, 24. I was in the middle of this, only remembering vaguely from childhood of what Admiral, who Admiral Dönitz was and what what his role was in the German Reich. And we're, to this date, I'm still trying to get a hold of friends, people that might know where that footage might be. There's talk about Warner Brothers having the footage. They acquired some of that footage for mm-hmm. Columbia Pictures or the German archives. Well, thank uh, you for sharing that. I That showed up nowhere in my anything I found. No, I don't think it would. That's one last thought, that sometime at the end of that production, Tony Lazzarino, who... who you can look up, and I'm sure get a background on, mm-hmm. uh, arranged a meeting between Dwight Eisenhower and General von Manteuffel, who were opposite each other in the, in the, in the Battle of the Bulge, mm-hmm. at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And the entire American press corps was there. And the two adversaries shook hands yeah, became, I think it, it should have become national news. I haven't checked it out. Hmm. I forgot about it. So wow. It was quite an event. I imagine so. Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time. I've just got one more question. This comes from uh, one of our fans, and actually my friend Kevin Cole from the Trash Cinema Collective. He wants to know uh, basically just any stories you might have about Alan Hale Jr. and working with him. No more sweeter guy ever lived. Um, he adopted my little daughter <laughs> and bounced her on his knees. And he was every child's hero. And my sons, my the second the second youngest, yeah, he was he was heavily involved with them doing the production and always had time for the kids. Did you guys ever get to eat at uh, Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel? Oh, we sure did. Gotcha. <laughs> yes. 
There was never such a thing as any work to be found, such as lobster bisque that Alan Hale made. Well, that's great. Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time. I, I'm so glad I got to talk to you. I should tell you now, I, I should have told you at the beginning that my first experience with you, as, as most kid, people my age, I was a latchkey kid. So I would come home in the afternoons, and instead of doing homework or any of my chores, I would immediately turn on the afternoon movie, and that was my first experience with the giant spider invasion. I was probably eight years old, and um, you're, you're definitely one of those people who spurred my uh, what, what my, my late wife would call an obsession with these sorts of movies. But uh, I I couldn't thank you enough for it. Well, obviously, it's music to my ears, and I thank you for caring. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is, uh, again, this has become another one of my little dreams come true. Uh, Eight-year-old me would not believe this moment was happening. Well, if you get a chance, last thing I can tell you is, when you get a chance, look at uh, a picture called... uh, Christmas at Rosemont. That one uh, actually came up in my research. Which which I wrote and sold under protest to Enderby Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And they massacred the whole. They took the miracle and all the, the guts out of the story and made an abortion out of it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, and that, that was when I, I what caught my eye were the was the cast on that. Uh, Brad Dorif, Michael Gross, and some people that stood out in that one. I'm yeah, sorry to wanna, I'm sorry to hear that they they gutted the story. I I don't want to end on a negative note, but uh, I'm rewriting it. I'm planning to do it. Hopefully, maybe we can get it done this fall or winter. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. And the Lotta Morgan story, its I, I know it's been completed. Do you have any kind of plan for distribution of that? That's still in the works. I'm, okay. I'm not happy with it yet. I understand. Bill, thank you and so much. I've had a wonderful interview with you guys. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a complete delight. All right, Bill. Thanks much. You bet. Have Please a good stay evening. stay healthy and keep her going. Thank you much. I intend to. Take good care of yourself. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Sir. You too. I'm looking forward to your Christmas at Rosemont. Great. Let me know what you think of it. I will. Thank you so much. All Bye-bye. right, Daryl. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. You Bye-bye. There you go. Bill Rebane, guys. Fascinating guy. He's still at it at 84. Uh, look forward to see what else he puts out there. Next week, we will have a very special episode in which we will be talking Jackie Naaman Jones, Debbie from Monos, the Hands of Faith. Happy to say that she is a personal friend, and uh, we talk a little bit about our friendship, some time we've spent together, and some of Monos, but mostly about Jackie herself and what she's been up to. Hope you guys enjoyed that one. Following that, our interview with Hyapatia Lee, and after Hyapatia, we will have Jack Hill. As always, when you're back out in the world, Take care of your servers. Tip them well, because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. Have a good week, kids.